Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. I'm your host, Heather Stark. Been doing this show for many years, but have never done a show that has to do with a pandemic and domestic violence. So I'm hoping to learn as much as we're all learning today. My guest is Susan Seagal. I hope I'm saying that right. Am I, Susan? I should have checked with you. Is it Seagal? Uh, actually, I, I, uh, Seagal is how I pronounce it. Seagal. Okay. I figured it was either Seagal or Seagal, and well, I had a 50-50 shot at it. And, uh, I'm happy Susan, to answer to either pronunciation. <laughs> my father always used to say, you can call me anything you want as long as you don't call me late for dinner. So That's right. Susan <laughs> has graciously agreed to come on the show. She is a hometown gal for me. She is the direct, director of the New Beginnings um, organization for domestic violence here in Seattle. And Susan, I don't think I mentioned to this to you. I, uh, years ago, um, I made it my mission back when Macy's and Nordstrom's were locally owned. I would contact them in January and on, I'd ask them for donations for the uh, domestic violence shelter for Mother's Day. Because I said, what's worse than being in a domestic violence shelter, being there on Mother's Day with all that fear and your kids and not knowing and blah, blah, blah. And for several years, Macy's and Nordstrom's really got behind it. And I would pull up my my car and I would get donations from both of them. And they gave nice things. And um, I would take them over to the office for New Beginnings so that the ladies in the shelter would have something. And then... Nordstrom's and Macy's became internationally owned and they wouldn't participate unless I was a 501c3 and I wasn't. So unfortunately, I wasn't able to continue with that. But I really enjoyed doing that. It was just my quiet little, my quiet little thing to do. And I enjoyed it tremendously. And I appreciate that New Beginnings was, was able to use that stuff. So that's, that's my story wow. on New Beginnings. <laughs> well, that's a that's such a terrific way of supporting survivors, and I thank you for for doing that. And it's I, I think you know over the years we've really seen that um, when survivors um, are are um, given demonstrations of how just plain folks out there in the public are thinking of them and remembering their situation, it's incredibly meaningful. So I thank you for doing that. And yes. I'm pleased to say that, that Nordstrom um, has continued as a supporter of New Beginnings in, in other ways um, over the years. They've been a wonderful supporter of our annual um, fundraising event in October um, in, in really big ways, which is, which is just great. Yeah, yeah. And but to me I you know, that's one of my little pet peeves that now everything is is corporation, corporate. Yeah, you know. And I kind of liked it when you know, somebody in the area could just do something because you know, and and get the community to rally around. But that's a whole different issue. I want to explain yeah. to you that Susan has more than 35 years of management program and volunteer experience for nonprofits, especially those focused on gender-based violence, reproductive rights, peace, and social justice. And before coming to New Beginnings, she served as regional director and had other jobs as well for the American Friends Service Committee and a whole big resume that I won't continue to read. I think that you'll be able to uh, figure out Susan's credentials as we have our conversation. So thank you, Susan, for joining us. When I asked you to be on the show, I asked you specifically if we could talk about how the whole COVID-19 pandemic 
is impacting survivors and um, victims of gendered violence. Can you answer that question for me? Is What are we seeing? Yes. Well, I, I, there are a variety of ways in which victims and survivors of domestic violence are being impacted during this crisis. One of the things that, that many of us think about, which is, which is uh, all too true, is that survivors are being uh, forced into much more constant proximity with their abusive partners in, in many cases during this crisis. And we know that that uh, kind of perfect storm of more constant proximity as well as the kinds of stresses that are mounting for individuals and families during this crisis are, are really uh, are really creating uh, kind of a, a, a situation in which uh, abuse is escalating. And uh, we know just based on the, the dynamics of domestic violence that that will be the case even in situations where survivors are not currently able to carve out a safe and private space to reach out to organizations like ours. So we're very concerned about survivors that we're not hearing from and who we may not hear from uh, for months as they're enduring this forced proximity and enduring the escalation of abuse that's caused by stress in this situation. And we know that abusive partners or ex-partners leverage vulnerabilities, and there are many potential vulnerabilities that survivors face in this crisis, including things like uh, illness, if the survivor herself or himself becomes ill and is reliant upon an abusive partner for care. Uh, That can be a very, very tricky situation. And, you know, we've heard of situations where abusive partners are withholding medications or um, threatening to kick their, their partners out if they become sick. We know that loss of income, um, you know, as, as jobs are evaporating, as hours are being cut, um, deepens dependence uh, that survivors have on their abusive partners. We know that uh, the virus is, is causing physical distance between friends and family um, members. And while, while most survivors are isolated to one degree or another by their abusive partner, family and friends may still be a lifeline in abusive situations that has altered in the face of this crisis. Um, worries about catching the virus, um, maybe keeping some survivors from seeking shelter, um, and of course, as I mentioned earlier, there may be the lack of, of private or safe to reach out for support. And that would be true because of the proximity of abusers, but also because um, kids are home from school and so survivors may not be able to, to carve out private space to, to talk. Um, but we're also, we're also hearing of situations um, where um, post-separation kinds of situations in which the virus and the whole crisis around it uh, is making survivors more vulnerable. So, for instance, um, survivors that... Oh, oh, please do. Post-separation, that means after the victim chooses to leave? 
Yes, yes. And so um, one of the things that many, many people that haven't maybe had up close experience with abuse may not realize is that um, that the point of leaving an abusive relationship can be a highly and especially dangerous moment for survivors. But even in the aftermath of that, abuse may very well continue either by uh, because stalking is is happening or because there might be some sort of shared custody agreement and kids are being used as leverage to to kind of torment or intimidate survivors and uh, some abusive people really use the legal system as a mechanism for forwarding the abuse. Um, sometimes um, another way that abuse can continue after a relationship has ended is, you know, it's through the use of technology and, um, you know, some abusive people may, you know, may be still monitoring a survivor's cell phone, may be impersonating the survivor via use of technology, may be sending out um, um, uh, I apologize, I'm just blanked for a second, um, maybe sending out um, uh, private information to employers to try to sabotage employment or ruin someone's reputation. So there's a variety of ways in which abuse can take place even after a relationship has ended. And so in the context of the current crisis, um, we are hearing from some survivors, for instance, that they typically do child exchanges in, in kind of joint custody arrangements um, in, in uh, places that are public and, and that feel safer. And with so many public places closing down during the crisis, those avenues for safer exchanges may, be taking, may not be available. And yet, you know, there's no flexibility around shared custody uh, arrangements in these situations. So there's fear um, on the part of some survivors in that situation. Um, court delays for non-urgent cases like divorce um, and even some child custody um, cases are being postponed and that can be prolonging um, a, a kind of a tenuous and, and unnerving and frightening situation for survivors. Um, we we heard of a, a survivor recently who um, whose ex had attempted to break into her home and was arrested and jailed. And during during the time that he was incarcerated, she was attempting to get a protection order, but the case was postponed. Um, and she had also recently gotten a better paying job and had been planning to move, but she lost her job um, due to, to COVID. And so, um, you know, she was not able to obtain a protection order in a timely manner, had lost her job, and so wasn't able to move forward with a, with a, a move that she had been planning. And in the meantime, her, her abusive ex had been released from from jail, and so that's a situation in which um, a survivor was highly vulnerable, and there was this cascading series of events caused by the COVID crisis that were putting her in greater danger. Um, 
we've we've heard of of some abusive parents in in shared custody situations intentionally placing uh, children um, in situations where they were having close contact with with folks who could potentially be carrying the virus, knowing that the survivor had some sort of compromising health situation that would place her or him at greater risk, um, or that the kids had some sort of compromised situation, uh, health situation that might place them at greater risk. Um, just a lot of fears around ex-partners um, doing destructive kinds of things um, to, you know, maintain a certain level of, of control or at the very least destabilize survivors and kids' lives. So, yep. you know, what, me, you know, as, yeah, please do. When, because of this crisis, I've heard of um, police, not, not locally here in Seattle, but in Chicago, I think, and a couple of other places where they have basically said that they will not respond uh, unless it's life and death. They just are not responding. Um, I read that somewhere. I wish I could give you the citation of where I can't. I cannot. So I, 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 you know, take it for what it's worth. But I did read about police response being impacted by this. Um, so, what, what else are you seeing uh, for survivors as far as the system? responding to the coronavirus, but not necessarily to the advantage of uh, a victim of domestic violence or gender abuse? You know, I, I honestly have not heard any stories like the one that you just shared about the police. I mean, mostly what I've been hearing in terms of systems impact has largely been around uh, the court system in cases of, of family law, um, and uh, and also in relation to protection orders. So, for instance, here in Seattle, um, in the absence of in-person um, petitions for protection orders, um, uh, survivors do have the option of filing legal paperwork through Legal Atom and also through use of email, and can um, make appearances for protection orders on the phone. However, um, for survivors that don't, you know, have safe access to technology, perhaps their technology use is being monitored by their partner, or who just flat out might not have access to the technology to begin with, um, or for whom English is, is uh, not their language. Um, that will inevitably limit access to the protection order system while this crisis is going on. So we've certainly heard some stories um, to that effect. But also, again, I think, you know, as, as survivors are being kind of thrust into more constant proximity with their abuser, there are a lot of ways in which survivors are, are not able to access um, supports and systems that might be available to them in, in the community. I was appalled to hear what you were saying about about the police in in, in certain cities. We've, you know, I, I'm not aware of that here. Take it with a grain of salt I, I'm, because I'm not didn't pay yeah. particular attention to the source. And so, you know, I mean, you always have to be skeptical of what you read. But I did read that, um, and so you know. Uh, for whatever it's worth. Um, and it did concern me because I thought particularly now 
you had mentioned that abusers are who want to be in control, that that's what they do. Um, you said that they are using the situation in some cases to their advantage, especially when it comes to child uh, custody, etc. And I was speaking with a local attorney yesterday, and she said that she had a client who called her very concerned because it was dad's um, turn to take the kids. And she knew that dad had the potential for being exposed because dad was still working. And so she was questioning whether or not she could just withhold the kids. I didn't say anything because I'm not an attorney, but um, the attorney told me that she, she said to the woman, of course, keep your kids at home. Uh, don't give the, the kids to him. And if, you know, if he makes waves, we'll deal with it later. I really, knowing how these court cases and how abusers can use the court situations to their advantage, I that made me worry. Have you heard anything like that? Any decisions being made like that? No, I, uh, you know, I've certainly heard those kinds of worries from survivors, and and so those are are very real. Um, however, I, you know, I'm I'm not in a really good position to speak to the legality of responding in one way or another. I know that typically when you have some sort of shared custody arrangement, those are supposed to be adhered to uh, pretty rigidly. And, um, and generally it's not, it's not easy necessarily to, you know, to, you know, to, to get some sort of alteration to the agreement. But either way, you generally have to go through some sort of process through the courts to do that. And so, um, you know, I think it's potentially risky to advise, um, advise someone to, to go against what that arrangement is. However, this is a very unusual situation. And I honestly, I, you know, I would be remiss if I, you know, if I tried to speculate on what lawyers are advising uh, survivors. Well, this is one attorney, and, you know, it was her opinion, I'm sure. And um, But when she said it, I just kind of thought, whoa, I can foresee all sorts of all sorts of potential problems doing that um, because abusers abuse. They put themselves first. Um, so uh, that being said, I want you to get back to uh, court delays. Now you said mentioned that uh, women are experiencing uh, some difficulty in accessing the court system because of technology. Are there other problems in accessing the court system right now? Are the courts, the courts in our area, and I'm sure in most of the country, are if they are operating, they are operating in a very limited capacity. How is that falling yeah, so, out? Yeah. Yeah, and that's you know, and that's what's happening here too. So, so where we're we're seeing family law cases involving divorce, child custody, et cetera, um, many of those cases are delayed at this point, which could you know, which just has the potential to prolong the, you know, the the, the sort of torment and prolong the agony and and just. Um, prolong the sense of not knowing how this is going to play out for survivors. And, um, and this is probably true of immigration law cases, which, um, which can impact survivors who are, you know, struggling to ensure their immigration status. And, um, you know, so it's, it's just really throwing everything into disarray. And I think when you're talking about survivors who have 
been traumatized by abuse and who uh, for very good reason are exceedingly anxious uh, around um, how, you know, what the outcome of various cases that they may be involved with will be, very concerned about child custody, um, uh, all of those kinds of things. This is just one more roadblock, one more one more element that is, you know, kind of not allowing them to regain full control of their lives. So it's it's very, very distressing. Are the courts um, aware of this? Are they operating um, with um, knowledge of, of domestic violence? I understand that at least in our county, um, we can, women can get protection orders if they need them. That's one of the things that the courts are actually still doing. Um, but I don't know about the rest of the country. Is that, is my understanding correct? Um, if a woman needs a protection order and she is able to do it, that's what you were saying she could do online if she has the technology? Yes, yes. So protection orders are are still being issued so far as I know. But again, it's just a question of, of, of um, sort of access and ability to file paperwork online, uh, ability to be able to speak on the phone. Um, to be to be present for that hearing, and so for for some survivors that will that will work well, and for other survivors who may be mo- closely monitored by their abusers or may not have access to the to the technology, that's uh, that's an avenue that's potentially cut off for them. Okay, so if you don't have that technology, you're just out of luck. You just have to endure. Well, you know, I I would say that. If, well, I would say say too though that you know I I would want uh, to encourage survivors in those situations, if at all possible and safe for them, to try to reach out to organizations like New Beginnings, um, you know, so that you know for both emotional support and safety planning. And, and any strategies that, um, you know, that they can talk through with an advocate to try to reduce the potential for harm and danger. So I wouldn't want survivors to feel like they're completely alone in that situation if they have the means of reaching out for support and safety planning, um, you know, which is, which is it's not perfect, um, but neither are protection orders. And so, you know, we want survivors to to reach out, if at all possible, for any and all support they can get. Yeah, yeah, okay. All right. Well, um, we talked about the courts. What about support services right now, places like New Beginnings? How are they operating uh, in, in this time? Well, you know, we and, and, and most of our partner organizations that I'm aware of are continuing to offer support through a variety of means. We, you know, we certainly here at New Beginnings, we have a 24-hour helpline that's very much still in operation, and we really want survivors to call and to get support. We, for survivors that are that are seeking one-on-one services, we're able to continue to offer them via the phone or video conferencing for the most part. Um, we're we're able to continue offering legal clinics um, through video conferencing and phone support. 
we continue to have um, short-term housing for survivors and kids that have fled domestic violence and that that program is still very much in operation and some of the services are provided in person and, and where possible they're provided by phone or video conferencing. And so we like like organizations around the country have had to pivot really quickly, um, understanding that in some cases, as we were just talking about, technology isn't available for survivors to access. Um, so, you know, we're always trying to strike a balance so that we can ensure safety for, uh, for survivors and for our staff while continuing to offer support. Um, I think, you know, at least, least here in, in Seattle, Every organization that I'm aware of that provides gender-based violence services have really pivoted to phone, video conferencing, text, um, email support, and that's the kind of support that we're able to offer, too. It's been a while, uh, like probably close to a year, since I interviewed the folks at the National Hotline, and at that time, they said that their uh, texting and their um, uh, their uh, way of communicating other than just the old-fashioned telephone was actually, it was about 50-50 uh, at that point. So I would imagine that this is going to kick that into overdrive so people can text uh, to get help and, you know, things that we we used to think of as not necessarily um, something that was, was doable. Um, but now we have that technology, and as you said, if you can access it, but very few people don't have a cell phone that, that they can use. Um, so anyway, it, it's, it's, a, it's a puzzle for, for everyone to try and figure out these methodologies and these new ways, and it's unfortunate that it had to, be, it had to happen so quickly to figure things out. Has this made, uh, this, this uh, COVID pandemic, has it made a difference in, maybe I shouldn't say now, but do you think it will make a difference down the road and as you are planning down the road um, for services, producing, uh, you know, providing services for, for women who need it? Hmm. Well, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think there's no question that that kind of adoption of particularly video conferencing for providing services, which is not something that we had been doing before. I could imagine going forward becomes one of the options that we offer for one-on-one -on -one services. Uh, prior, to the, prior to the crisis, um, we, you know, for a survivor who wanted to meet with an advocate in person, we would generally either do that on a mobile basis out in the community so we could meet with a survivor wherever might be safest and most convenient for her or him, or uh, through an appointment in our office. Now that we've been using video conferencing for, uh, for appointments, um, and it's generally been speaking, generally speaking, been working well, I could well imagine us um, offering that as a third option for in-person um, or you know, for one-on-one -on -one support going forward, um, you mentioned you know you mentioned chat and text. Um, certainly, for our advocates who are currently working with survivors, we are able to email and able to text to, to provide support with them. But one of the things that we haven't had as a part of our helpline chat and text um, modes of communication. 
And uh, this is specific to where we are here now, but we're in the process of planning for an, and establishing a centralized countywide helpline that will include chat and likely text uh, going forward. And that will really make a difference to, uh, to you know, for survivors to have really 24 acts 24-hour access um, through a variety of modes of communication going forward. And so uh, I'm really feeling the lack of having that centralized helpline with the, the chat and the text capabilities now in this current crisis. And it's kind of reinforced my, my sense that, um, you know, that this will be a really important addition to our particular county to have it. Um, mm -hmm. I think... You know, we've just in general with the crisis, and, and I know that other organizations have faced this too, in general we have had to think more flexibly and had to be willing to make some, some fairly quick pivots. And so I think, you know, my my hope is is that that level of flexibility can be baked into our work even more than it had been before the crisis going forward. One of the problems, of course, that this virus is having on everyone is economic. People have lost their jobs, albeit temporarily, but it's putting a crunch on things. What I have seen, however, are people um, putting their money uh, behind their beliefs a little bit more during this. New Beginnings, I'm sure, has a variety of funding sources, like all nonprofit organizations. But are you seeing any economic impact right now on New Beginnings? Yes, that's a that's a really good question. Well, like many uh, domestic violence organizations, we rely, as you mentioned, on a a combination of government funding and private philanthropy. And so far, our government funding is holding steady, which is terrific. And we hope that that will remain the case. Um, and you know, but what we're worried most about is private philanthropy, uh, because like many organizations, um, we've had to cancel fundraisers that we had planned during this season, and you know, are just kind of pulling out all of the stops to try to raise the funds in other ways. And on the one hand, um, you know, some members of our of our community and some of our donors are you know, are in a tougher spot financially because of the crisis and may not be in the position to give as they might have in the past. And on the other hand, um, other donors are stepping forward and e either giving gifts sooner in the year than they might have otherwise or stretching their giving to help compensate for things like canceled events. It's, it's too early for us to know um, yet how this is, is going to shake out. But we have seen certainly examples of, of donors and foundations stepping forward because they know that things are going to be tough for nonprofits like ours during this crisis. Mm -hmm. So we just hope that over the course of the year, we're able to raise the funds that we need to continue operations. I mean, we're, you know, as I mentioned, and this is true of other organizations, we're continuing to serve survivors in a robust way now, and we anticipate at least the possibility that there could be a significant upsurge in calls to our helpline and, and requests for services once the crisis passes and as uh, survivors um, are in a position to safely reach out for support. 
Mm-hmm. Are you? How are you handling your staff um, right now? Is everybody working remotely, and does, how does that lend itself to the job that needs to be done? Yeah. Uh, most of our staff are working remotely, but we, you know, but we're maintaining kind of a rotating skeleton crew at, at our Home Safe program, which is our our short-term housing for survivors that have fled abuse. Um, and a kind of a rotating skeleton crew um, in our administrative office, and um, and staff are coming in on kind of a selective basis to handle very specific things. So, for instance, one of the services that we provide is to offer flexible financial assistance for survivors to break down a variety of barriers to safety and freedom, and we're continuing to provide those that kind of financial assistance which oftentimes, you know, which which almost always, um, not 100% of the time, but almost always involves someone having to come into the office to process some paperwork and cut a check. Um, so, you know, we're, we've, we've been able to create a, a system whereby we're able to do social distancing with each other um, and in, in most cases with our participants. And, um, and, and we just had to be quite creative we're, you know, we're, um, our teams are meeting regularly via video conferencing so that, so that um, staff can continue to connect with each other and feel part of the team and, and, and get support and, and just, you know, share successes and, and find some, you know, some, some ways of, uh, you know, kind of drawing joy and, and um, resilience out of the situation. And, um, you know, and we're doing that at multiple levels within the organization so that we can uh, ensure that we're staying connected and to ensure that our staff, particularly those who are continuing to provide direct services to participants, can get the support that they need. What about things for the children? I mean, when children go through this, uh, I know that, you know, I'm, I'm one of my degrees is in psychology, and uh, there's a big brouhaha with the Psychological Association of how can we serve people? How can we provide the services people need in these times of uh, fear and isolation? Um, and uh, how can we do that without putting ourselves or anyone else at risk? Yeah. In your in your experience, what about the children um, who often are very traumatized in these situations? Are there services yeah. that you're finding for the kids? Well, you know, we do we do on our staff we have youth and family advocates in both of our direct service programs, and they are are doing a terrific job of staying in touch directly with kids where that's appropriate, and and staying in touch directly with with parents and so part of what we're able to do is to provide support to the parent uh, to parents so that they can um, assist their children in healing and processing um, what they've experienced as well as uh, just processing all of the changes that are happening because of the crisis we can continue you know we are able to continue to connect kids with services out in the community where that's appropriate. And our youth and family advocates have also been really proactive in identifying um, activities for 
uh, kids and parents to do during this time of social distancing, um, finding resources, kind of academic and other sorts of resources for parents to do with their kids at home, um, or, you know, in, in the case of our home safe program within our program. And so, um, you know, I, I would just say that our youth and family advocates are as active as as they ever were in terms of trying to connect with kids, um, offering parenting support, helping kids and parents navigate systems, and um, helping to identify activities that, that kids can do in the context of social distancing. But there's no question that the, the crisis is, you know, you know, has, you know, presenting some barriers as well. I mean, you know, where we might have been doing group activities with kids, for instance, in our home safe program, that's something that we can't do under the circumstances. And, um, you know, where we might have been able to, um, you know, offer, uh, you know, in-person childcare for support groups is, is not something we can offer right at the moment, of course. So, you know, this is not to say that there aren't um, some alterations that we've had to make and there aren't some avenues that are no longer available at the moment during the crisis. So it's just a question like everything that we're doing of, uh, you know, being as flexible and as creative we, as we can and ensuring that we're checking in regularly with, with our participants to, you know, to, to meet as many of their needs as we, as we can. And going back to what we started talking about when we started this whole conversation, isolation and um, sheltering in place with a person that's hurting you. If someone is having to do that, and because of the lack of privacy, lack of um, uh, technology for or whatever reason, uh, they're having to live with that. Do you have any particular advice, any clues um, that might help them get through that kind of a situation? Well, it's, it's really tough because, because every situation is, is quite individual. And when we're safety plan, planning with survivors, we're asking a lot of questions about, you know, about their physical situation at home. We're asking a lot of questions about, uh, the the behaviors that their partners exhibit. Um, survivors know best what their you know they know their their abusive partners best, and they're likeliest to be able to predict what their partner will do under various situations. Um, and so, you know, and so we encourage survivors to really. Do you know if they're not able to reach out and talk to someone to do some safety planning? You know, we we suggest that you know they they take a close look at the specifics of their situation and and try to strategize in advance about how they might handle certain situations that could come up and what are some things that they can do that might help them to uh, prevent situations. And so I, I hesitate to generalize a lot because it will really depend on individuals. Um, if survivors can't make a phone call to a, to a helpline to get some assistance with safety planning, but they find that they can go online 
together some resources. There's a lot of good information online about safety planning that might help survivors to think a little bit about what kind of options they have. I would, I would encourage if survivors are still able to connect with friends and family via phone, text, uh, or other means, I really encourage them to stay in touch on a daily basis to, you know, to, to make use of that lifeline, to let folks know um, in their world that they're okay. Um, you know, it's, it's just, uh, it's really tough to, to generalize. I, I hope that survivors can hold on to hope that there's the possibility of connecting with support after the crisis eases. Um, and in the meantime, just think very closely around about the specifics of your situation, what you know about your abusive partner's behaviors, and how it might be possible to avoid certain situations, to avoid being physically trapped in certain situations, and, and to do some advanced planning about how you will react if certain situations occur. In a similar vein, what advice do you have for friends and family who know that their loved one is trapped into that kind of a situation? Well, I, w- I would say the opposite of, of what I just said about survivors, which is, you know, or, or, or really the same, I guess, advice of, of what I just said about survivors, which is to keep contact going as much as is possible, whether it's calling every day, whether it's texting every day, just trying to find a way to keep the contact going, to let let the survivor know that you're there for them, that you're checking in, um, that that you will remain kind of a steady lifeline. Um, and, you know, I think that's really important, um, particularly in situations where survivors may not be able to reach out on their own um, to organizations or other support systems that they might have. And so, you know, certainly if a family member, you know, can't make contact with the survivor and has reason to be concerned, they may have to opt to call the police um, or to, you know, to see if a neighbor can check in or something like that. But I think, it, you know, what's most important in this situation, if it's at all possible, is just to maintain that that constant and consistent lifeline with the survivor, understanding that as things ease up, hopefully more contact will be possible and more support will be possible. You manage a staff. I, how large is your staff at the beginning? Uh, oh, we have 40 staff people. Okay, yes, so you have 40. 40 people who work for you. And I know from my training uh, that um, a big part of the discussion when you're talking about employees who work in this kind of a field is self-care. What kind of self-care are your employees able to practice right now? And are they able to actually practice it? Or, you know, what, what's, what's going on with the people who are doing the work? Well, you know, we certainly hope that our advocates are continuing to, you know, to, to maintain friendships, even if they're having to do that via technology or, you know, or, you know, if, 
you know, if they're living with um, partners or roommates and that sort of thing, we're hoping that our advocates are continuing to reach out and to uh, enjoy their friends, uh, finding ways to continue to enjoy hobbies that they may have at home, um, exercising, um, exercising or doing yoga or Tai Chi or other kinds of things that can help ground them. So of course, self-care practices are, are also highly individualized. But one of the things that I've been struck by with, um, with this crisis are the many creative ways that, that people are continuing to connect with each other and share their talents with each other. You know, whether it's, you know, whether it's folks, um, filming and streaming, um, a concert or kind of people, you know, kind of making noise at a particular time or or other kinds of, of creative things that people are doing to just kind of lift spirits and help help folks know that they're still connecting. And I I hope and trust that that our advocates are continuing to do those kinds of things in, in creative ways. And as I mentioned, um, even just connecting with the team and connecting with their supervisors to get support are really important ways of, of maintaining self-care as well. Um, I mean, one of the worst things that I could imagine would be advocates doing this work remotely, uh, largely from their homes, and then not being uh, being able to debrief, you know, if they've had a particularly tough phone call or video conference with a with a survivor, or um, you know, not being able to get support if they're if they're really um, you know dealing with a very tough situation. And so, uh, so you know, it's it's really important that they stay connected to each other as well as to other supports that they have in their life. Um, Heather, are you hearing this noise in the background? Um, we, I'm at home, and my husband is is um, getting cat food where I am. And I just wasn't sure how much this is interfering with your ability to hear me. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's interesting you say that. I was I was doing a, 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 a recorded interview a couple of hours ago, and my son just wandered into the kitchen and started opening drawers and cupboards and making a sandwich. And it's like, yep, that's just the way it is now. <laughs> just, I was realizing I forgot to tell my husband that I was taping a podcast right now, so he just kind of came right in and did his thing. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, I think that's one of the things that I've learned from working at home is we learn to change our standards a little bit, you know, and um, we're not quite as picky about what's professional right now. And I think that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. With questions, um, especially questions that we didn't have a chance or I didn't have a chance to ask you to prepare for, but I figure you do this every day and you've been dealing with it. So, you 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 know how to answer these questions without um, practicing. However, did I miss anything important that you would like to share? Mm. You know, I guess the only thing I don't think that you missed it, but I may have missed it in my in my response um, to one of your earlier questions around the impact of the virus. 
The other thing that I, I just want to speak to that also is a post-separation issue is just that, you know, with with the financial uncertainty that so many survivors are facing, um, you know, we're hearing from survivors who are really afraid uh, that they're going to uh, kind of lose their hard-won independence and self-determination because, you know, because they no longer have a job or because their hours have been cut or because of, you know, some other effects of, of social distancing and the, and the current crisis. And so that's something that, that I want to lift up as well. I mean, we, we support a number of survivors who have been able to end abusive relationships that have really begun to rebuild their lives are finally starting to feel on solid ground. And then, you know, and then some of that solidity has been yanked out from under them because, you know, because they no longer have a job or because their their livelihood is, is threatened. Um, and, you know, we worry that that will cause some survivors to return to their abusive partners because they may feel like they have no other option. But for other survivors, it just means that, you know, that, that, that their struggle um, and their uncertainty and their anxiety is prolonged. And it's especially painful for us when, you know, when we've been working with survivors that have reached a certain pinnacle um, in, in terms of forward movement and, and are finally beginning to feel secure and like, yeah, they can, they can do this. And then a crisis like this just kind of throws everything into into chaos for them and so that's you know that's another aspect of this that we're really conscious of and in general i i think you know this this crisis is is profoundly unsettling to all of us it's scary we worry about getting sick we worry about our loved ones we worry about the economy i mean so many so many worries that all of us are experiencing and then when you factor you know recent abuse into the picture, um, you know, it, it just is, is, it can be overwhelming for survivors. And so the need for just, just plain old emotional support, as well as financial assistance and other kinds of assistance, will, will inevitably be more acute now. So I just want to speak to that as well. So there's, you know, quite a, quite a spectrum of, of what survivors are experiencing during this crisis, ranging from flat out you know, heightened danger to, you know, to just kind of uh, destabilization of some very hard-won progress in their lives. And, and so I think, you know, we all just, we, you know, we, we have to, to stay strong so that we can be here for survivors um, with whatever they're facing at whatever point they're able to reach out for support. Yeah. Interesting, you're talking about uh, recent um, uh, domestic violence, but in my experience, long-term survivors of domestic violence, um, this, this is one of the, the issues that I have in furthering my particular education, is that the long-term survivor is given the message from uh, society to just, you know, okay, it's done with, it's passed, now you move on and think of happy rain and rainbows and unicorns and just get on with your life and everything is rosy. And rarely does it work that way for a long-term survivor. I think most long-term survivors learn to paint that rosy picture for other people's comfort. But it's a struggle 
I think, for most long-term survivors. Are you seeing long-term survivors who are at risk of um, perhaps a PTSD uh, recurrence or, um, you know, something because of this? Uh, The reason I ask that is it seems to me that Oftentimes, uh, flashbacks and uh, recurrent things happen when you are placed in a powerless situation again. Is that, that yes? I, you're you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And and I probably shouldn't have made that distinction between short and long term because you're right. You know, when a when a crisis like this happens, it can it can be triggering for survivors. It can kind of send survivors back into a to a dark place, even if you know, even if even if they've been able to move forward in their lives in, in, in many different ways. And the scars run really deep. I mean you're really you're really talking about a lifetime of of effort to you know to uh, you know to to cope with the aftermath of abuse. And of course for some survivors there are lingering health effects that last, you know, for for, for decades, as well as sometimes mental health effects or um, substance abuse, those kinds of things. So there are a variety of ways in which uh, abuse negatively affects survivors, and many of those effects can last a lifetime. So I think it's uh, also um, folks who have experienced this at some point in their life, um, I, I worry that maybe this situation because as I said you know the powerlessness um, when we're usually when we're thrown back into a situation that reminds us or that reminds our bodies of what we experienced before that's I think when we're at risk of having um, that recurrence of those feelings um, for you know of of, you know that so so I worry about those folks too and um, but I'm a little less worried now that I've spoken with you and I uh, have uh, a great deal of of um, admiration for how you're leading the troops, so to speak, and uh, helping folks dealing and coping with uh, domestic violence, which under the best of circumstances is horrible. Um, But we are certainly in situations now that we haven't seen before as far as uh, having to develop plan B and cope with it. So Thank you for all of the work that you've been doing. Thank your 40 staff people uh, for continuing to work in this, this strange time. And uh, I must—I may be a Pollyanna, but I have to say that I do believe this too shall pass. And uh, we'll get back to normal. It may be a different normal, um, but it will be normal. And uh, I hope that you share that view and that you're able to convey that and, and uh, help other people understand that view. I, I, I absolutely agree with you, and uh, and and I can only hope that in in terms of our responsiveness around domestic violence, that it's even richer, richer and deeper and 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 more creative than it has been in the past. And so, you know, I think uh, it's it's our obligation to take the the lessons from this experience and apply them to our work so that we can be as absolutely responsive as possible to survivors and their various needs. And I really thank you, Heather, for shining a spotlight on this issue. Uh, for for many of us, home is a sanctuary um, during a really difficult, challenging, and frightening time. And, um, and you know, I think it's, it's critical that 
you know, that all of us understand that there are many in our midst for whom home is not that sanctuary. And I really thank you for, for highlighting this issue. Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate that. But uh, you're the one that's doing the work. So I'm just trying to get information out there. So thank you very much. I do hope you'll come on the show again and uh, talk with us after this thing is over and let us know how that new normal is working and what it, what, what it means <laughs> to be in this new normal of helping domestic violence and uh, uh, interpersonal violence and all that other stuff. I, I You know, I, I got my degree from UC Denver's program on domestic violence, what, 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And back then it was domestic violence. And now we came, then we came up with uh, uh, intimate partner violence. And then we came up with gendered violence. And then we, I can't keep up with all the names, but, it, but we all know what we mean. Um, and so whatever terminology we, we use, we know what we mean. Thank you so much, Susan, for sharing your information with us. I'll let you recover your voice a little bit. And uh, thank you. And I hope you'll come back to the show again after this is all over. And thank you for listening. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye.